welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community? Do it for a living? Make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Check out. So let's let's switch to, I mean, so far we've been talking about what I assumed would be the case that you're, the sale to clients is based upon um, fiscal benefits. Um you know, uh, the CO2 benefits are, are certainly there. Um, as we move forward, there's kind of two threads I'd like to pull on and get your perspective as a, and, you know, obviously somebody who's had a lot, a lot of these conversations. The first one is um, we are electrifying everything as they replace major mechanical systems. They're going to be replacing them with heat pumps and electrified systems more than gas and stuff. And the grid is decarbonizing. So, you know, from your perspective, you know, certainly you're at a point with existing building stock, with um, existing regulations around gas still being permitted, um, things like that, where the CO2 benefits for a retrofit are high. But in 20 years, that won't be as true. Do you, do you see a, um, a, a diminishing return curve in, and have you observed it across geographies from, you know, more, uh, climate-aware geographies to less climate-aware geographies already? <laughs> the buildings last a long time. Yes. Uh, with the exception of Stanford University, which seems to knock down buildings after 25 years, for the most part, buildings last 50 to 100 years. We have a few clients where their buildings were built in the 1800s. So, and we also have clients where the building was finished in 2018. There are some technological changes that after they're in place do mean we can deliver less savings. Uh, so heat pumps is a good example. We find typically a lower percent of whole building savings in heat pump buildings than we do in others. Uh, there's another technology, variable refrigerant flow, which is very common in Southeast Asia and only just starting to make its way into the U.S., uh, that is also very efficient. Um, so as buildings get built and they start with LED lights and a VRF system or a heat pump system, uh, it's less likely we'll get 30% savings in them. And it's more likely we'll get five to 15. The number of existing buildings is very large. And unfortunately, we aren't anywhere near the point of diminishing returns. So for clients that have 100 buildings, we can typically deliver 
you, especially if they're over 40,000 square feet, we can typically deliver savings in more than 90 or 95 of them. It's very rare that we find a building uh, over 40,000 square feet where we can't be useful. And I guess that makes sense. Your, your portfolio focus um, levelizes your risks across a set of stock too, which is you know a good another good business uh, choice. Well, it typically doesn't actually. Really? Um, yeah. So individual buildings tend to be held in an individual LLC or LLP or some sort of legal structure. Um, so we do have some clients, uh, school districts, publicly traded REITs, where that's not the case. And there we can have a portfolio level guarantee. Uh, and that ends up being cheaper and better for us as well as the client. But for most of our private equity real estate firms or family offices, and the family offices can be very large. Um, so one of our clients is Swig Company. They own more office space than uh, I think most commercial office REITs do. Um, but you know, for them, if they're holding things in an individual LLC, which makes sense, we need the guarantee to be at the LLC level. Yeah, no, uh, that actually makes sense. Your, your uh, website talks portfolios, but this business structure does not permit portfolios in all cases. Yeah. Okay. That is one of the key elements of figuring out. So we talked earlier about the landlord tenant split incentive as a challenge. Uh, there are, there's a lot of challenges in industry. Uh, that is one of them. Uh, another one is that utilities are simply low priority. So, you yes. know, if rent is 10 to 500 or not 500, but if rent is 10 to 150 bucks a square foot and utilities are two, the landlord just doesn't care. Um, it's a noisy and crowded marketplace. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of companies talking about energy efficiency in commercial buildings but it's hard to see. And so it's hard for clients to tell it apart. And so there's a lot of dashboards that give recommendations and they use the word optimization. And then there's firms that actually integrate with a control system and send out real-time signals every five minutes and they use the word optimization. And that's tough. You know, whereas in other industries, Consumer Reports recommends a Camry as a reliable car. Lyft will pick you up in a Camry and drive you to work. There's zero confusion. But in the, our industry, it's really hard to tell apart. And then what makes it worse is there's the industry is rash with overpromising and underdelivering. Mm -hmm. And there's extremely few firms that will put their money where their mouth is. So yeah, that risk that risk sharing is a key aspect to your business model, which drives a lot of your success, I'm sure. Yeah, it it does. And I think it's really interesting to ask why not when other companies won't take the risk? But you know, there's some quite good firms I like. Spark Fund is a good finance fund. They have a guarantee that's pretty good. Um, there's a handful, I mean, a literal handful of others that operate in commercial real estate that will actually reimburse a dollar amount to the landlord if savings are less than expected. But for the most part, it's hundreds of firms promising savings and absolutely unwilling to put them in the contract. And I think that's a, it's a real interesting place to get curious and ask why not. Yeah. Well, there's also the side of governmental efficiency programs where the government has an efficiency thing and they send out, you know, like my buddy Bruce Hansen in Ontario, you know, who's done this on and off and, um, uh, for Ontario commercial real estate for 20 years. I think the program was killed by the current government, so he's doing something else again. You know, just 
depends upon the government. So you end up competing with governmental programs like that as well, in at least some jurisdictions. Um, and once again, that's not a case where they're guaranteeing stuff. They're going in, they're sending an engineer like Bruce in, he's doing an assessment, he you know, gathers some data, and then he says, do these five things. But it's not at the level of putting an automated control system in that adjusts the pump um, every 20 minutes to make the boilers the most efficient. Yeah. And it's, there's, there's a lot of hazard in that model and it ends up being very dependent on the individual skill level of the person doing the assessment. Um, I'm so, just going to say Bruce is awesome, but yes, I, I understand about other people who aren't Bruce. Yeah. Sure. I, and we, we work with a firm out of Portland, uh, Energy 350, that is just full of amazing mechanical engineers, but they are very much the exception, not the rule. And I'm less familiar with Canada's energy policy, but in the US, it's been very full of misaligned financial incentives uh, where you have utilities running the programs, but also making money by selling energy. And even where it's decoupled, which is theoretically the solution to this problem, it's still massively more profitable to sell energy and make big transmission and distribution investments than it is to do a good energy efficiency program. And so we've seen a ton of hazard in utility run programs for efficiency. And it's, it's interesting in that a few of the utilities that rolled out programs where they actually looked at interval meter data, so data from before and after a retrofit every 15 minutes at the utility meter, and mm -hmm. compensated based on real reductions there. Very few of those programs worked. <laughs> and they kind of all rolled them back. And I, I find that to be very telling. Yeah, we could spend a lot of time on utility regulations and their, you know, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time looking around the world globally at weird um, implications of how utilities are regulated and the implications for the costs of electricity and the carbon load of electricity. Uh, Australia and Alberta are top of mind for me right now. Don't know why they both start with A, but the way that they deregulated made it really benef um, cost beneficial, profitable for the utilities to build a lot of gold-plated transmission. Mm -hmm. And now all the um, generation that goes on has to pay very high prices to connect to the transmission, and it's very high prices to transmit electricity. Um, and so they have these weird problems where Australia is, you know, a massive rooftop solar um, place in part because of this weird regulation of utilities and Alberta's electricity is the second highest cost in Canada. You know, it's just Alberta is Alberta is, huh? It's also, the, it's also the highest CO2 per kilowatt hour. Um, you know, so yes, it's um, been mostly coal and natural gas and it's also the most expensive. Yeah. This is not the way it's supposed to go. It's certainly not the way the assertion goes. But, but yeah, uh, it is an interesting question there. But the point you're making is you're in a very crowded competitive market. I mean, I, I referenced some of the stuff that I am, um, you know, people like EP&T Global um, and others who are offering machine learning and AI solutions. I, I don't know if you had a chance to glance through the machine learning and clean tech report I flipped over. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, there's a lot of people who are claiming this stuff. But how many, I mean, 
you, you must know your competitors very well. How many of them are actually promising guarantees? You don't have to name names, um, except for the good ones. But um, uh, in commercial real estate, I can think of two. Besides you or including yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> uh, besides us. So, and neither of them actually is really a competitor for us. So Spark Fund is a finance company. Yep. Uh, so if you have a retrofit you want to do, they'll provide capital for it and they have a guarantee, which is pretty good. Uh, and I, th I, I like that firm. Uh, but for the most part, they don't operate in commercial real estate the way we do. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not you know institutional landlords. It's smaller buildings, mom and pops, um, family, like smaller family offices that own you know a handful of buildings. Um, and then I think Redactive has a pretty good guarantee as well. And they are also primarily a lighting company and primarily financing of, of LED retrofits. And they're starting to do some HVAC, but it's very different than you know, real-time optimization as the core of their business. And also they're mostly Fortune 500. And those are the only two companies <laughs> I can think of. And they're not, we don't compete with them in the market at all, like Spark Fund, we've had various conversations over the years about partnering. Um, Redaptive, I think in the past 11 years, maybe we've had two clients ask about them and that's it. Like it, we don't see them in the market because they're in different markets. Like it, it's just the way we don't see Johnson Controls or Honeywell in the market because their main markets are municipalities, universities, schools, and hospitals. Uh, and otherwise, they're equipment vendors. And so those firms have good guarantees. But again, we don't come up against them. So does this mean, I mean, I, I, you're, you're actually talking to a, a form of media, a kind of a weird form of media, um, with a guy who just likes having interesting conversations with people solving climate change. Um, but are you, you know, uh, are you guys beating the drum so that landlords actually know about you? Um, are, are you stacked up with business you can't fulfill because you're one of the few firms that does this? I mean, yeah. yeah, so this, I will look back on 2020 with exactly zero fondness. It was <laughs> probably the best thing that ever happened to Carbon Lighthouse financially, but I will not remember it that way. So we were bottlenecked from 2017 through 2019, namely we like for three, it took us from 2010 through 2016 to figure out how to really crack the nut in commercial real estate. And then, then we did. And from 2017 through 2019, we were bottlenecked. We had more, more customer demand than we could fulfill. Because you had and, to send people to sites. Mm -hmm. Yep. And 2020 forced us to stop. And so it took until 2020 for us to get enough data from our existing sites to be able to equip existing facilities teams to achieve the same results uh, that we could. And in 2020 Q4, that was our best ever sales quarter by more than 2X. Nice. Um, and 2021 Q1 was our fastest deal pace. Uh, I think we signed a deal on average every three days or something, uh, which was you know, more than twice as fast as any previous time in company history and no more bottlenecks. Well, which means that now you can actually do stuff like this to actually drive demand because you can actually fulfill demand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice well, we, we figured out how to fulfill it anyways, but uh, yes, it's, it's a lot 
it's a lot more comfortable now. In in 2018, if we had signed, you know, 50% more contracts, I don't know what we would have done. Uh, whereas now, uh, we get we have these automated emails come out from Salesforce whenever a deal is closed, and the response from the the engineering team now is much more bring it on as opposed to um, panic. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can see that. Now it's like, okay, I have to send a kit and a set of instructions and I have to spend three hours on the phone with people in Michigan. Yeah. And people in Michigan who are excited because they have a wish list and they have a pain list and we can mail them sensors and get their financial stakeholders on board with solving those problems in a way that wasn't possible in the past. And to go back to your example of LED lighting, we have a client where they have a number of sites, dozens of sites across the portfolio where they weren't able to get approval for LEDs in the past because of the split incentive. And now they can use us as a tool. Uh, the facilities teams can go get those LEDs installed because now we can make the tenants and the landlord benefit. Uh, but also it saves them a ton of time and maintenance. Like incandescent bulbs burn out and that's annoying. Oh God, yeah. Uh, and LEDs burn out once every 10 years. <laughs> First thing I did when I got this condo after we came back from, well, Sao Paulo and Singapore and parts east of Vancouver, the first thing we did when I bought this condo was replace all the bulbs with LEDs. <laughs> and have you had to replace one since? One. The, the ballast above the mirror in the bathroom seems to be flaky and it's just caused two bulbs to burn out. I should just replace the light fixture, but I haven't got around to it. Uh -huh. <laughs> Spoken like a true landlord. Uh, spoken, spoken like somebody who lives in a lives in a condo because he doesn't like maintaining households. <laughs> Fair um, enough. So let, let's poke at let's return to CO two savings though, because it was more the CO two savings that I was thinking about. Right, the um, um, we haven't talked about the CO two savings, but you you talked about the fiscal benefits. How much are you saving on uh, an average CO two savings, and how do you calculate that for your clients, and how many of them care? Yeah, the caring, okay, so three questions in there. It uh, is. <laughs> so we, we typically reduce by 10 to 30% of CO2. We calculate and track only scope one and scope two emissions. Um, so we don't, we don't look at scope three emissions for commercial real estate. Define, so just, just to make, because not everybody in clean technical land knows what <laughs> those are. Define scope one, scope two, and scope three. Scope one is emissions from fossil fuels you burn yourself. So if you heat your house with a natural gas furnace, that's scope one. Scope two is related to utility usage, basically. So if you cool your house through an air conditioner that's electric, uh, then you're creating emissions on the grid, and those are your scope two emissions. And scope three emissions happen farther down the supply chain. So if you buy paper towels, the carbon emission associated with manufacturing those paper towels would be your scope three emissions. Yeah. And you're not replacing stuff with low carbon debt stuff. You're re reducing energy use. Exactly. Yeah. And for a landlord scope three emissions, we draw our box to not include that. Uh, and so we'd go work in the manufacturing plant and reduce its scope one and scope two emissions as a way to reduce those emissions. Yep. Um, so we typically reduce scope one and two by 10 to 30%. Um, part of the reason we limit our box there is that it's very easy to calculate that accurately. 
So we know what the utility use is before and after carbon lighthouse. We know how much fuel oil or propane or natural gas a client has bought before and after carbon lighthouse. Um, so we're able to track that easily. In terms of clients who care, I think we're at a really interesting crossroads uh, where two major societal themes are unraveling right at commercial real estate's front door. Um, so the first is the rise of ESG, uh, so environmental, social, and governance. And our clients now are starting to get a lot of pressure to actually do something with ESG uh, rather than provide lip service. So their own investors, the people they get capital from to buy buildings, want to know what their ESG plans are, what their progress is against those plans. Uh, tenants are asking about it and their own employees are asking about it. Um, and this gets us into the second theme, which is consumers are starting to drive more decisions in commercial real estate now in the post-pandemic world. Um, and so part of this is that leasing is hard. Uh, and so landlords have to pay a lot more attention to what the market is requiring of them. Uh, but the second is that uh, it's just a, like the workforce has changed. Millennials are 50% of the workforce now. Uh, like millennials, millennials are not 22. They're in they're their 40. 30s. Yeah, 40. 40-year-olds 40 exactly. with two kids and a dog and a station wagon. Well, not a station wagon. <laughs> An electric minivan. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, so that's that's half the workforce. And I think Gen Z is the next generation is also cares greatly about climate change. I think there's a good Deloitte survey that came out uh, where right now the top two post-pandemic concerns are healthcare and disease prevention. So this is 30% of millennials said that, uh, followed closely by climate change with 20% of millennials saying that. And so you have all of this pressure mounting on landlords to do something about ESG and we've gone in 2017, almost all of our clients, they didn't really care about the carbon at all. Maybe they'd put it in a little marketing report, but they were working with us for the money. Yep. And now we see a lot of clients say, hey, we don't actually need a 20% return on investment. If you give us a 12, that's as good or better than what we're returning investors. And if it actually helps us reduce our carbon emissions, let's go. Right. Um, and so we're starting to see that shift pretty rapidly from the market now. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the book Negotiation Genius by Deepak Malhotra and Max Bazerman. I don't know if you've read that one or not. I haven't. Um, it, you know, a big part of what they talk about is expanding the number of things that are on the table. So instead of it just being about price, it's about delivery time frame. It's about uh, quality. It's about other things. And now for you, that's beneficial because if CO2 is a negotiable item, um, you have the opportunity to give them what they want at a greater profit for yourself. Um, if that can become part of more of the negotiations. It's a, and it, so that's goodness for you, for you guys. Um, but do you have a fixed price model? Do you have a, like pre-baked pre business plans or is it a per client negotiation? No, it's, it's simpler than that. So we just charge it a fixed monthly fee uh, and it, it varies a little bit with complexity of the building, but for the most part, it, it's, you know, it's generally in the range of 10 to 20 K and it doesn't matter if we're delivering 50 K a year of savings or 250 K a year of savings. Um, but it matters in terms of velocity. 
So part yeah. of us winning a deal every three or four days uh, is directly resultant in this, which is a 20% return on investment when it also achieves a top level goal from your own investors around ESG is very appealing. And a 20% return on investment, if that's the only investment, if that's the only benefit, well, now that's to be evaluated against every other option. Yeah. So I guess you're, you know, you're in a really good position there. There's three or four major strategic things. I mean, one, COVID forced you to change your business um, model for delivery of your service to a much better one. Uh, thing two, though, is that COVID radically changed the landlord-tenant um, dynamic, as, as you mentioned, that you know, there's office space going begging, and there's an uh, land, land, landlords are trying to make their products, their, their spaces more competitive. And so a reduction in costs for the landlords and a reduction in CO2 em- or for the tenants and a reduction in CO2 emissions for tenants who also have their own ESG concerns drives stuff to you. Um, the third part is there's a lot less new construction and a lot more renovation of existing stock. Um, some of that is, you know, uh, one of the things I was involved with was assessing um, commercial real estate for um, dynamic risks of COVID-19 transmission. One of the weird parts of my background is that I helped build the world's most sophisticated um, public health surveillance solution, um, which is used across Canada and the Middle East um, for uh, communicable disease and outbreak management. So, you know, now occasionally I see stuff in the news and it says, oh, Data from Panorama, I helped build that, which is kind of fun. Um, cool. I missed that in my internet stalking of you. That's great. I have a really weird background. <laughs> I have kind of this huge public health background globally, and I have my nerdy computer background, and I have my climate change solutions background. I don't have kids. I don't watch major league sports. <laughs> hence, hence the reason I have time to have more than two things. Um, but... Yeah, the um, other implication that we're seeing is a much lower starts of new construction and a much lower, much higher renovation of existing construction. But you actually managed to offer this solution without retrofits. And so that was one of the questions I had is how do you dodge the um, renovation cycle of HVAC only being improved when major renovations were also underway? You're just dodging that because it's a purely virtual thing with some sensors. Uh, And the returns are very high. Yeah. And there's no disruption. That's the other key element. So it's, it's quite, we've had one site, which was a hotel in Death Valley. So typical summer peak temperatures of 120 or higher degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. 135 Um, recently. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm just curious to put this into 135F to C. So that is for, for our Canadian listeners here, it's 57 degrees Celsius. It's real hot. That hotel. And, and I'll, s- I'll actually conject, um, you know, uh, contextualize that for people in Singapore and Mumbai and Delhi who are also listeners. Uh, that is a dry heat. That's 57 degrees with no humidity. So it's better <laughs> in some cases, but it's really hot. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hot. And in that hotel, it made sense to poke a little hole between every single stud in the exterior walls, pump in insulation, 
and patch up and repaint that hole uh, financially. Mm -hmm. That is the only time it has made financial sense to do something so massive to a shell rather than the once every 75 years, you have to do something with the shell. Um, So by avoiding major retrofits and having really high returns, we're able to get out of the, okay, once every 40 years, we need to replace the boiler. Let's do a project cycle. The other element that is very important is that it's easy. If you have tenants in a building, you can't just not cool it in the summer because you're replacing the chiller. So you have to plan those projects really carefully and ideally avoid them. Whereas what we're doing, there's no disruption. The key thing that changed was in, you know, we started the company in 2009, 2010. In 2005, there wasn't Amazon Web Services. Like there was no cloud computing that you could just log onto and spin up 500 supercomputers for 10 minutes at will. And sensors, you know, we get sensors for 60 bucks a pop. They retailed for one to $2,000 a pop in 2005. Oh, yeah. Um, The IoT stuff has been plummeting. Yeah. So we were just completely on the forefront of this massive wave in cheap data, cheap compute power uh, that allowed us to break the cycle of big, heavy capital efficiency retrofits that started back at the first oil crisis the U.S. seems to remember anyway of the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the observations I make. There's um, companies without legacy debt. Um, you know, two weird pieces of background. I was um, lead architect on a um, one of the lead architects on a uh, election uh, Canada modernization, putting iPads in place of papers and pencils in voting stations. Hmm. Um, and the firm we were dealing with out of St. Louis was um, the one of the only companies in that voting administration, voting management space, not the voting space, that was post-cloud, post-iPad. They started on those devices. Um, and that was strongly beneficial because all their competitors had legacy debt from old Windows devices and crap, and replatforming costs and stuff like that, and a bunch of idiocy that was put into stuff that just wasn't necessary now. So you've dodged that one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, certainly the lack of disruption. I yeah, another part, weird part of my background is I, I, I'm I'm one of the few people who can say he sent people to the Arctic about thirty <laughs> times. <laughs> I um, used to run uh, technical branch transformations for one of Canada's major banks, and we had five branches that were on permafrost. <laughs> oh wow. And I rewired them like three or four times over the course of my, my career there before I decided I was really bored of doing that type of stuff. Um, and yeah, one of our big things, we did all of our changes at night when the branch was closed so that the branch people would go away, we'd move in. Next morning, their branch would be completely different and no customer would be impacted by it. Yeah. So I, I, I get the don't disrupt business model um, yeah. completely. Yeah, that's a make bankable financial returns, make it really, really easy and achieve a whole bunch of goals for the client around finance and ESG and ease of operations all at the same time has been a, a winning recipe there. Yeah, that's actually works out really well. That's it's, it's a nice business model and you know, you thought through it carefully and now 20, COVID was really good for you. And as you say, a 
very bad way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exact. That's well phrased. Uh, so back to the CO2 though, because I'm, I'm thinking about, um, you know, you, you, you talked about scope three admission, uh, emissions. And one of the things threads I've pulled at is carbon debt for new building stock. I'm seeing, you know, they, let's just take Vancouver. In Vancouver, you can't build a new building or retrofit an existing building and put gas in it. It's just mm-hmm. not permitted regula- from a regulatory perspective anymore. And I'm seeing that spread through jurisdictions that I monitor globally. Um, you know, it's, uh, we're, we're behind the curve compared to Japan where heat pumps are huge. Um, similarly, you know, we're seeing um, a lot of expectations from building code about you know, passive buildings. And so there's going to come a point where your service either has to be embedded up front for efficient operations, or you're going to see a reduction in both cost savings and efficiencies. But that's probably 20 years, 40 years out before you start seeing diminishing turns there. It's certainly not a near, near-term near strategic risk for you guys. Yeah, I'm also worried that is 20 to 40 years out. Oh, yes. yes, for different reasons. <laughs> yeah, from a business perspective, you've got lots of business for the next period of time, and it's going to take too long. Um, this is actually another thought. One of the significant inhibitors to the speed of transformation to heat pumps and other similar building retrofits is they typically require regulatory approval for significant transformations through City Hall. And some are streamlined or not, but it's still a regulatory burden. It strikes me that censoring and applying your service requires no third-party regulatory approvals. That's that's right. And that's a big part of, like, it needs to be profitable for clients. It needs to hit a number of their goals outside of finance, and it needs to be easy. Not requiring permitting is part of being easy. Um, so we don't, we don't need any permits. Uh, we don't need any utility incentives. We don't need any tax complications the way solar does. Uh, I consider all of that part of the easy bucket. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think your your website, which is a source of a bunch of information that I you know use to ask various hopefully intelligent questions, doesn't really <laughs> highlight that enough. I, I don't think I think you're underselling that simply because you know so many of your customers would be expecting permitting and other things, but I didn't see the that easy thing popping. Um, yeah, I think that's great feedback, and I will share it with the marketing team. Uh, I, I agree. I think it's also when we used to need to send engineers to site, you know, back in 2019, I don't think we were as easy. Um, and that, I don't know that we've updated the website uh, as comprehensively to, to reflect that. Yeah, because your, your, your differentiators are quite substantial now. The COVID differentiator for deployment is no third party people on site which also doesn't pop because that's now a new value proposition you're offering them. It's a low um, contagion risk. Um, it's a, a touchless opportunity. And, you know, you could probably articulate, you know, your, your cleanliness things in your, in your facility where you package the, the boxes you ship to them, for example, to highlight that. Yeah. There's just some interesting stuff there. There's um, I, I think about things like that. I was, we are talking about solar and one of the people I talked to was on switch. Um, a AI driven commercial solar thing who can basically take a Google uh, Google satellite view picture of a commercial building and automatically lay out the solar panels 
on the roof and provide a quote in 10 seconds. Um, it's great. Oh, it's great stuff. It, but their quote really buried the lead. The lead was, we can offer you seven cents uh, um, electricity per kilowatt hour guaranteed versus 25 cents per you know, kilowatt hour or whatever it was in the jurisdiction. And they were mostly in California. Um, but that was kind of buried way down. <laughs> so one of my pieces of guidance to them was, you got to sell your story. <laughs> yeah. It's a great story, but you're not selling it very well. <laughs> um, yeah. It, last thing I, last thing I want to poke a little bit about was the AI-ness. I mean, uh, obviously if you glance through that machine learning thing, you know, that I spent uh, and you know, you've poked at my um, LinkedIn, you've probably seen that I've spent a lot of time in technology and I've done a lot with machine learning and AI. When you say AI, what do you really mean inside clues? Yeah. I, and I know you're the CEO, not the CTO. So this might be a terrible question to force upon you, but I'm going to do it anyway. No, it's, it's fine. I mean, my co-founder and I are both uh, we're physicists. We were physics lab partners at Harvard together. We grew up best friends since we were five years old. His dad is the chief scientist at Livermore National Labs. Uh, we're, we're we're both very technical. The our investors ask us a lot about this too. I think that we aren't writing entirely new AI methods. Um, we are using a lot of off-the-shelf AI stuff. Uh, we use a lot of Monte Carlo or Markov chain Monte Carlo analysis, which I don't know is sort of a gray area of whether it's technically AI or not, depending on how you use it. I think the ultimately the details don't matter. Mm -hmm. There is only, can you predict things and deliver them well enough to take financial risk on? And our data science and AI helps with that. So does just having a huge amount of data from a large variety of buildings from a ton of sensors that are well beyond what anyone else measures. Um, and that's part of that. And can you make it actionable? Can you convert that data into an actual spec or scope of work that a facilities engineer can execute or bid out to contractors to get done? Um, and so the AI we do, you know, whether it's, Markov chain Monte Carlo stuff or whether it's whatever tool, it doesn't like the tool isn't what we care about so much. We care about the outcomes. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, I, you know, a lot of people miss about AI. It's, it's a lot of it is very specific purpose, data analytics and science, you know, and data science tools that enable you to pull out certain inferences that they are harder otherwise. Um, but they're very actionable deployable technologies now. And in 2017, 2018, neural nets became a very um, exploitable technology with open source stacks and availability of GPUs on cloud services. So that you could do really interesting stuff on a dirt cheap budget. Uh, I don't even think you guys, nothing I've seen from what you guys are doing suggests that you have any neural net technology anywhere in your stack and you don't need it, but might be wrong. Yeah, we probably have something somewhere, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, neural nets are certainly not like the main workhorse. And also it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like 
whether we use a hammer or a screwdriver to build a house, like the thing that matters is the house. Yeah. When I was talking to the um, uh, lead author of, I, I don't know if you saw um, the, probably not because you're not nerdy in the same way I am nerdy, you're nerdy <laughs> differently than I am. Um, Thanks. Though. I'll tell my wife that one. <laughs> uh, I, I used to tell people in, when I was back in the East Coast that I was um, a geek and they say, you tell people that? And now I can tell people I'm a nerd. <laughs> it's like the, the world has progressed. Um, but the when I was talking to the uh, lead author for the uh, machine learning communities, the data science communities, um, major climate change report on how different data science technologies could be used for different portions of the problem space. Um, that was his comment was that, you know, it's, there's been a real overfocus on neural nets recently, but there's seven different major technology stacks. Machine, machine learning is only one of them. And even machine learning is subdivided. My um, partner in one of the firms that I, um, uh, I run, distance.com, uh, we do, um, you know, uh, long scale simulations um, of agents walking through buildings um, in the design phase to enhance sociability, um, which is kind of interesting. We actually uh, model out the use cases of going to work and going to school and getting mail and walking your dog and can then have agents encounter one another. And we're starting to assess the interface with um, academics at UBC in terms of when just bumping into somebody turns into saying hi to somebody, which actually has mental health and public health value. Yeah, that, that sense it's of fascinating. Yeah, and so the person I'm working with is you know deep into the machine learning and uh, data science space because we're we're generating for a 365 day simulation of a you know a, a 50,000 square foot building. We're we're generating uh, gigabytes of data which we have to then turn into simple, um, useful insights in you know, three-dimensional representations deploying GLTF. Uh, so they can span, they can just through a website, sc scroll into, zoom into and pan out from and turn layers on and off of a complex re representation of what sociability looks like in the building they're designing. Uh, but also we've got you know, sophisticated Vega graphs, which are highly malleable which once again, take those gigabytes of data down to a much simpler thing, which is a representation, which people can actually understand. Lots of data science there. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think that's a, that's a perfect use case because where AI is so valuable is when you don't understand what's going on and you need to learn. And physics is really, really helpful when you understand exactly what's going on. And what Carbon Lighthouse does related to these two things, it's actually very similar to what Facebook does uh, for the Oculus Quest, their virtual reality headset, mm -hmm. uh, which is to do finger tracking really well. They combine, they have a physics model, which is a, it's a model of a skeleton of your hand. And then they layer on top of it AI. So based on the data they can get from their cameras to get very realistic positions of where your fingers might be. And they merge those two things, the real world data matched on top of the model of the hand. And that's actually how Clue software, our software works as well, which is it's a mix of there are some thermodynamic properties that we know. And so we don't want to use statistics or AI to dictate that stuff. If you change a valve from 80% to 60%, we know what happens to the flow. 
mm-hmm. but based on real world data, that's where it's really helpful for us to use AI to find out, okay, what percent open is this valve really? Um, and it's a mix of those two things, which is really where the power of clues comes from. Interesting. That, that implies you can overcome some of the limitations of calibration of controls as well. Yep. That's in actually figuring out exactly what the controls are doing and how they're calibrated and how they're programmed is where a large body of our software is focused. That's actually a huge real world problem. Um, so calib- just overcoming the calibration problem for, for deployed stuff. Uh, so that's good. So, hey, Brendan, we're reaching the end of our time. Um, I uh, want to give you a couple of things before I say thanks and goodbye. Um, so one of them is just, you know, you've got a bit of a global audience. Um, you know, Clean Technica is the world's largest outlet for these, you know, especially now that green tech media is dying out in the United States. Um, Clean Technica is, you know, stepping into some of that, those shoes. Um, but it's also a global audience. And we've talked about a lot of stuff, but this is the opportunity for you just to say, here are the things you want people to take away and here are the things you think are important. Yeah, great. Thank you. I think the largest takeaway, and this won't be a surprise to most Clean Technica existing audience members, but I think it's really important for everyone to recognize and share frequently is that the world has changed and pricing has changed. And there's no longer, in many areas, there's no longer a choice between do we have to do something that's beneficial economically versus do we have to do something that's beneficial for the environment? And what Carbon Lighthouse is doing in the North Americas is both. We're cutting carbon emissions by 10 to 30% and we're giving our clients a better return on investment than they can get in the rest of market. And if you're outside of the North Americas, we can't help you right exactly now, but I'm certain there are firms that can. And I think helping the world understand that there are now major areas of overlap where we can both reduce emissions and make everyone money in the process is absolutely critical because that is a new paradigm compared to even 10 years ago. And now that that's possible, we should be measuring things very carefully uh, because we don't need to greenwash anymore. We can actually take real action that reduces emissions and provides investors returns. Excellent. So I'm going to make the pitch for you. Uh, Landlords of commercial buildings, get on the horn to Brendan Milstein, the president of Carbon Lighthouse. He can help you save money and help get the board's ESG committee off your back. Um, thank you very much, Brendan. Um, this, you know, this has been Clean Tech Talk. Uh, I've been your host, Michael Bernard, and thank you very much for spending some time with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much as well, Michael. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Yeah.
Yeah.